Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This week, speaker Dr. Jay Firebaugh brings us the message entitled Journey Through the Old Testament, summarizing many books of the Bible and highlighting their foundation for the gospel. You can find the sermon outline for this message at enewlife.com. But um, it's my experience that I, I think a lot of Christians kind of have a fragmented understanding of the Old Testament. And by that I mean the Old Testament to them is just sort of a bunch of isolated happenings and stories. You know, they kind of all here and there and all over the place and not really sure how what follows what and how it all flows and fits together and that kind of thing. So what I'm hoping to do today is to help you get an understanding of the flow of the entire Old Testament, to see what's going on and why it's going on and how each of these things kind of fit together in the whole deal. Um, you know, the, the Old Testament is two-thirds of your Bible, and it's important that you understand it. In fact, I would say, you know, we spend probably the majority of our time in the New Testament, and justifiably so, but I would say to really adequately understand the New Testament, you have to understand the Old Testament. It's what comes first. It's the foundation that the Old Testament is built upon. And so it's very important that you understand this flow of history of what God's doing on. So what we're going to do today is I'm hoping to kind of go through the history and the geography and the flow of the whole Old Testament so that you'll see how that all fits together. So this is normally where I would tell you to uh, open your Bible or your device to some passage or some text, but what I'm going to tell you is if you have a Bible or some device, open it to the table of contents. Okay, go there to where you can see the books of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament books, those 39 books, because you're going to see where each of those fit into this story in this next bit of time that we have together. Okay, now let me give you the kind of the big picture to start with. Okay, um, I think you can tell the whole story of the Bible in four acts or four parts. So let me kind of give you that. Part number one would be creation. That's Genesis 1 and 2. The creator God creates everything. The only way that you can have something from nothing is to have someone, right? And so that someone is the one true God, the God of the Bible. So part one, Genesis 1 and 2, is creation. Part two in Genesis 3 through 11 is the fall. Sin enters into the world. It's rebellion. It's not simply that Adam and Eve eat a piece of fruit. It's that they choose to say, I'm not going to do it God's way. I'm going to do it some other way. Sin enters. Rebellion. And so as a result of that, uh, the world is impacted by sin. So much so that by the time you get to Genesis 6, it says that God regrets that he even created mankind. And he destroys all of the families of the world except for one through a flood. But no sooner is Noah off of the ark than there's sin again, right? And you see sin spread. You see it go all the way up to the, to the experience of the Tower of Babel, and all of that goes on. That's part two. Part three of the story is the part that starts in Genesis 12 and goes all the way through Revelation chapter 20, and that is God's plan 
for redeeming his creation. You're going to see how God starts with a man named Abraham. We'll see that today. And how he lays into place his plan for his creation to be restored. So that by the time we get to part four, which is Revelation 21 and 22, uh, creation is redeemed. There's a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, Creation's been restored. Sin has been dispelled. And mankind, again, is in fellowship with God. He's in complete unity with each other, and he's enjoying God's creation, okay? That's the story. That's the flow, the big picture. Now, this morning, what we're going to deal with is part three there, that big section, or at least the first part of that big section, starting in Genesis 12 with God calling out of Abraham, all the way through to the New Testament, all the way through when Christ comes on the scene, that season that we've just celebrated, Christmas, When Jesus Christ steps into history and shows up, and the New Testament begins. So we're going to cover that first section together from Genesis 12 up to the beginning of the New Testament, all right? So in order to do that, we've got to learn some geography, all right? So uh, for our purposes this morning, we're going to say this, we're going to like lay a map out here on our auditorium floor, or the whole auditorium here, like it's a map. And for our purposes this morning, this direction will be north, Got it? So if this is north, that makes that section down there south. Good. You are quick studies, aren't you? So north, south, over here would be east, and over here would be west. Now, to the north on our map that we're laying out here would be the nation of Assyria. They'll come into play a little later on, but up here to the north is Assyria. Down here to the south would be the nation of Persia. Really the south, kind of even wrapping around there to the southeast. But that would be, if you were out there in the lobby and so forth, that would be the nation of um, Persia, okay? So you have Assyria up here to the north. Down here to the south, you have Persia. Over here to the uh, east, and again, it would be beyond this room, but just contain ourselves to the edge of it here. This section over here to the east would be the nation of Babylonia, okay? So you have to the north, Persia to or, um, Assyria to the south Persia to the east you have Babylonia and then over here on uh, the uh, west side there would be the Mediterranean Sea so if you're uh, on the very edge of the seat over there uh, last seat on the row there and so forth would you just kind of wave like this all of you see those are the waves of the Mediterranean Sea right there everybody got that <laughs> all right Mediterranean Sea over on that side now a few other important bodies of water and uh, let me ask uh, all, why don't the three of you, uh, four of you guys, why don't you stand up just for a minute? You have no speaking parts. You don't need to be f- afraid. All right. <laughs> and I did give you a warning, didn't I, that you could leave earlier. So, yeah. So, okay. So, these people right up here, this is the Sea of Galilee. All right. So, don't just stay standing. You won't have to the whole time. But for right now, stay standing. Sea of Galilee. Then down here to the south, we've got another important body of water. And so we'll have you, um, oh, let's have you guys and you and you. If you'd stand up just for a minute, you guys are the Dead Sea, all right? <laughs> all right, I know you weren't feeling very well, but you are the Dead Sea now, okay? So up here to the north, you have the Sea of Galilee. Down here, you have the Dead Sea. And then there's a river that connects here. If you'd stand, and those of you who are just right on the edge, right up here, Craig, there's a river that connects the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. That is the Jordan River. So you got that? So over here on this side, you have the Mediterranean Sea. Here you have the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River that flows down to the Dead Sea. Got it? You with me? All right, you guys can sit down. And then this land that falls right in between 
these bodies of water in the Mediterranean Sea over here is the land of, anybody know? Israel. That's where Israel is, okay? People, those of you who are sitting over in this section, if people said, you go anywhere this Christmas, you can say, well, Sunday morning I went to Israel. <laughs> right there, see? So you're right here. You're the land of Israel, the promised land. By the way, if that's not good enough for you people, um, then uh, this summer we are taking a trip to Israel. Janet and I are leading a trip uh, in July that's going to be a great trip and we'd love to have you go with us. We're going to go uh, for, with new lifers to Israel, anybody that wants to go with us. And uh, there's information in your bullets. We've got a great price. It's a great organization that we're going through that's, you know, great arrangements and very secure, all of those things. And uh, there's information in your bulletin about that. And there's a really nice color brochure that you can pick up in the office if you want to know more about that trip, okay? So, but this land right here is the land of Israel. So let's review. Up here to the north, we have... Assyria. Down here to the south, we have Persia. Over here to the east, we have Babylonia. Over here to the west, we have Mediterranean Sea. Then you have the Sea of... Uh, did I say the, right, say the wrong thing? Mediterranean Sea. Okay. Over here, you have the Sea of Galilee. Flowing out of that, the... No, no. Flowing out of the Sea of Galilee is the Jordan River down into the Dead Sea. There you go. And this land... Right here in between is the land of Israel. Okay, a little bit more geography, and then we'll be through. You're going to have to keep twisting and turning to follow me, okay? Over here in the southwest corner, there's another body of water south of Israel, and that is the Red Sea, okay? So the Red Sea is over here, and so going beyond that, even more south and west across the Red Sea would be another nation, the nation of Egypt. You remember that because... When God's people, as we'll see here in a little bit, are here in Egypt, they have to cross the Red Sea to get up here to where they'll enter into the Promised Land, right? All right, now, almost done. One more body of water, and that is over here to the other side, the southeast side of the room. We have another body of water down here very near the land of Persia, and that would be the Persian Gulf. Got it? Now, just for your information, uh, flowing there's a couple of rivers that would be right in here that would flow down here into the Persian Gulf. And there's a very important piece of uh, real estate that would be between those two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Earlier in the book of Genesis, that would be the Garden of Eden. Okay, now we're not going to deal with that because we're going to pick up the story in Genesis 12, but that just kind of gives you a frame of reference. Okay, everybody with me so far? Oh, that was bad. Everybody with me so far? Yes, all right, good job, all right, thanks, I appreciated that enthusiasm. All right, we're going to start our story, God's plan for redeeming his fallen creation. That part three starts in Genesis chapter 12, here in a, a, a city, here just a little north of the Persian Gulf called Ur. And there in Ur, God divinely, sovereignly calls out a man who uh, he chooses to love, who he chooses to put his grace on. And that man's name was Abraham. Now, God in Genesis chapter 12 tells Abraham that from him he is going to build a people, a family and then a nation, a people, through whom he is going to bless so that through them he can bless the whole world. God's plan was never just about Israel. God's plan was to bless 
Israel, these descendants who would come from Abraham, so that through them he could bless the world. He would do that through two ways. One was that his plan was that as God would bless his people, then what they would do is be the conduit through which they would tell the whole world about the one true God. But you know what those silly Israelites continued to do? They continued to take the blessings of God and say, thank you very much, God. These are all for us. See, they missed the point. Now, aren't you glad we're never like that today? Right? I mean, do, we, we get blessings from God, and we think, oh, thank you very much, God. This is all about me, rather than understanding that God blesses us so that through us, we can bless the whole world, see? God was going to do that through that way, and then the other means that God was going to bless the world through these, this group of people that would be Abraham's descendants was that through those descendants, from those descendants, would come the one who would be the ultimate sin offering, the Redeemer who would shed his blood, who would die on the cross in order to provide forgiveness for all mankind. See, he was going to bless the world through Abraham and his descendants. Well, here in the land of Ur, God calls Abraham and he says, what I want you to do is I want you to leave and I want you to go to a place that I'm going to show you. He didn't know where that place was. He didn't know what that meant. Have you ever had that experience where God says to you, hey, I want you to step into the unknown. I want, I, I want you to just step out and follow me. God, but I'm scared. I know it, but I, I'm asking you, I'm calling you to trust me to go to a place that I'm going to show you, whether that's geographically or emotionally or relationally or to step into some new ministry or some new aspect of service. That's what God calls Abraham to do, and Abraham does it. And so he leaves Ur where he was comfortable, where he knew everyone, where, where he was established, and he follows God, and they come up here to, to this city called Haran. And there in Haran, Abraham's father dies. His name was Terah. And at that point, then, Abraham, then, uh, you know, he becomes the one who has all the wealth. You know, it's his. He, he inherits it all kind of thing. And so there from Hera, then God leads him down here into the promised land, the land that would one day be called Israel, okay? Now, Abraham has a son. That son's name was Isaac. And Isaac has a son. His name was Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. Most notably was his son Joseph, who the other brothers captured out of jealousy and sold him as a slave down into where? Into Egypt, see? He gets sold as a slave carried by a caravan down here into Egypt. Now, God put him there and works in incredible, miraculous ways to have Joseph there in Egypt so that he can rise. This is an amazing story. He can rise from, from being a slave in Egypt to becoming the second in command in all of Egypt. And God did that in part so that when he became that powerful person in Egypt during a time of famine and desperation, Joseph could then rescue all of the remaining, uh, you know, all of his family, Jacob's sons and family, and all of, all of Abraham's descendants could bring them down to be cared for into Egypt so that they would not starve. God preserves this line of, of uh, Abraham through Joseph being in this position in Egypt. So the book of Genesis ends 
with all of these Israelites, that's what we'll call them for now, God's people, being fat and happy, prospering down in the land of Egypt. That's where Genesis ends, but Exodus then begins with a new Pharaoh, a new king who rises to power in Egypt, and he didn't know Joseph. He didn't appreciate for what Joseph had done in order to be able to preserve the, uh, the whole nation of Israel and make them, pro- or the nation of Egypt and make them prosper. So he looks around and he says, Man, there's all these Israelites. And what if some other power invaded us? What if they joined up with them and teamed up with them? Boy, they could help overtake us. We better do something about that. So out of fear, they enslave all of these Israelites. You know, anytime you act out of fear, it takes you bad places, doesn't it? So out of fear, the Pharaoh of, of, of uh, Egypt does this. And so the Israelites are trapped into slavery, and they call out to God for a redeemer. And God raises up a man whose name was Moses. And Moses goes to the Pharaoh and says, God has called me to lead the people out of Egypt. And Pharaoh says, no, you're not taking all these slaves. And so what God does is he, one by one, unleashes a series of plagues, ten plagues, on the land of Egypt, each one attacking individually a god that the Egyptians, a false god that the Egyptians worship. Until finally the tenth plague was that the death angel would pass over Egypt and on one given night take the firstborn from every home. Now, in preparation for this, God comes to his people, the Israelites, and he says, you know, uh, the death angel's going to pass over you as well. But I'll tell you what you can do. If you will kill an innocent, spotless lamb, and you will dip a brush into the blood of that lamb and paint that, uh, the doorpost of your home, then when the death angel passes that night over Egypt, he will pass over your homes and not take the firstborn of your home. You'll be spared while all of these Egyptians will be punished. And that's exactly what happened. They, the, the Jewish uh, people have down through the years celebrated Passover. That's exactly that night is what they're celebrating. But do you see the symbolism of that? We just, we just sang about the... the, the um, the, the Revelation song in where, where we're seeing worthy is the lamb. That, that lamb there at Passover was pointing to a future lamb of God who would come and shed his blood and be the payment so that if we would paint the blood of Jesus above the doorposts of our lives, then we won't get the punishment that we deserve either. We'll, we, we'll be passed over. So, uh, that happens, and when it does, the Pharaoh says to, to Moses, take these people, just go. And so Moses gathers these hundreds of thousands, maybe a couple of million people, these Israelites, and he leads them out. Well, no sooner had they left Egypt than the Pharaoh gets to thinking, why did I let all this free slave labor go? And he gathers up his armies, and they're coming after them. They're either going to wipe them out or they're going to recapture them or something. But here they are, and they get to the edge of the Red Sea. The Red Sea is right there in front of them, and right behind them is the armies of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And so what Moses does is he calls out to God, God, deliver us, and God miraculously parts the Red Sea so that they cross over, God's people cross over on dry land, and as soon as they're out, the Egyptian army who's followed them into the Red Sea, the water collapses and they all drown. 
By the way, um, right there at Exodus 15, if, uh, um, Moses wrote a song of praise celebrating how God delivered them through the Red Sea. And we're going to sing a song that we sing regularly around here called the Song of Moses that points back to that, Moses' words right out of Exodus 15. If you're in one of our uh, small groups that's following the Gospel Project, that's right where we are this week, right there in those chapters in Exodus, uh, Exodus 15 and thereabouts, right where God has delivered his people. We're taking a three-year journey all the way through the Bible, and it's not too late to get up. If you're not in one of those small groups, consider doing so. About half of our groups are doing that. But right here, God delivers his people. And so they come, Moses leads them here to Mount Sinai, which would kind of be in this general area. And Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God. But while Moses is up on the mountain hearing from God, what do the people do down here? No sooner is Moses gone from them than they gather up all their gold and they create a golden calf, an idol, to worship. You're going to see this problem of worshiping idols over and over and over again through the Old Testament. I would say you're going to see it over and over and over and over again today. Because an idol is simply anything that we put in the place where God should be. We're not worshiping golden calves, but we would never put something in the place where God should be in our lives, would we? Well, they did. They worshiped that golden calf. Well, Moses comes down and he has the law that God has given them, the offerings and the feast that they're to participate in as a people to keep them tethered to the fact that this one true God is who they should depend upon and rely on. He's who they should trust and believe. And again, these offerings, these sacrifices that they are to continually make, thousands and thousands and thousands of innocent lambs who would be offered, who would shed their blood as a pardon for their sin, looking forward to this ultimate offering, this ultimate sacrifice that would come and shed his blood on the cross so that we could have our sins pardoned. Well, that's the book of Leviticus. There where they're given these offerings and feasts, the law. Moses leads the, the people up here, and they're ready to enter into the promised land. Remember, this is Israel. He's ready to enter into the promised land. But first he sends across 12 spies. And they come back, and here's what they say. They say, the land is everything God said it would be. It's lush. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But the people are just way too big. We we could never conquer these people. We could never take them out. And these same people that just over here saw God deliver them miraculously through the Red Sea, they don't have the faith to trust God to miraculously take them into this land that he's promised them. You see, when we get our eyes on the opposition instead of on the size of our God, we'll misread things, won't we? Well, that's exactly what they do. They're scared to go. That's the report from 10 of the spies. Two of them say we should go, but the majority rules. And so what God does is he sends them out into the desert. And so for the next 40 years, that's what you read about in the book of Numbers. You read about their wanderings over here in the desert. They're right here. They're ready to enter in, but they wander for 40 years until that entire generation dies out. And Moses gathers the people again for a second time to give them the law. That's the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy just means second law. God, you know how he gave them the law over here? 
at Mount Sinai, he gives them the law again so that they as a people can be ready, this new generation, to enter into the promised land. And so they come up here, and, and by this time Moses then now parts from the scene, and a new leader is raised up, Joshua. You read about it as he takes the nation of Israel across the Jordan River here into the promised land. See? Um, uh, when you read the book of Joshua, you'll see what they have to do. They have to, they have to conquer this land. There were people there. It was the land of Canaan. The Canaanites live there. They have to conquer these people city by city. They have to settle this land. They have to make this land their own. Uh, all of that's going on in the book of Joshua, okay? Now, um, what also happens then as you see them settling and conquering and possessing this land is this series of cycles happens over and over and over again. What would happen is God would bless his people, and guess what would happen when God blessed his people? They'd get real comfortable and forget all about God. They'd start serving and worshiping idols. See, they would put other things in the place where only God should be. And so what would happen is when they would do that, God would send another nation, another army, another people to conquer them, to overrule them. And so they would call out to God, and God would raise up a deliverer. These deliverers were called judges. That's the book that tells all about this. And those judges would lead them to throw off that oppression and be free again so that God could again bless them. Then as God was blessing them, what would happen? They would get comfortable and they would forget all about God and start worshiping and serving idols. And then they would uh, be overtaken by some foreign nation, some other army. And then they would call out for a deliverer and God would raise up another judge. Seven times in the book of Judges, you see this cycle take place. How many times have you seen that cycle take place in your life, right? We do it too. Seven times in the book of Judges that takes place. And again, here's the problem we turn to idols. Now, let me tell you that uh, during this also, uh, there's another little book I want you to know about, and that is over here in Moab, right here. Here, we'll make you Moab. You're about right where Moab would be, right here. You didn't know you were going to have a big part, okay? Right over here in Moab, um, uh, God took this widowed woman and her mother-in-law, who was also widowed, and uses her from that little land of Moab to point us to the part of the story where God uh, raises up a redeemer. Again, that this redeemer, if you read that little book of Ruth, this little redeemer would rescue her and her mother-in-law as well out of their poverty and their need, all pointing forward to one day we would have a redeemer who would rescue us out of our poverty and need, okay? Now, by the end of these seven cycles that goes on through the book of Genesis, God's people are clamoring for a king. And so God gives them three kings, each of them about 40 years each. And uh, these kings then ruled the people during Israel's really most prosperous time. The first king was a fellow by the name of Saul. And we read about Saul in the book of 1 Samuel. He ruled for about 40 years or so. He was followed by another king. Oh, by the way, the, the best way that you could remember about Saul was really he had no heart for God. He was followed by another king whose uh, name was David, 
who ruled for about 40 years or so. And uh, we read about David in the book of 2 Samuel. And the best way to remember David is he really was wholehearted for God. Saul, really no heart for God. David was wholehearted for God. And then David was followed by his son, the third king over the united uh, Israel. Uh, his name was Solomon. We read about him in the book of First Kings. And uh, you can kind of remember Solomon that he was sort of half-hearted towards God. Solomon's problem uh, was that, again, we read about him in 1 Kings, uh, is that he continued to be led astray. He would, he would take all these foreign wives because he was making land deals and acquisition deals, and he was accumulating wives along with properties and all the rest. And these, these wives, these other people would come in, and they would lead him, again, away from the true God and towards worshiping idols over and over and over again. Not God, but turning to something else. And again, we're not today, we don't have little stone statues probably in our homes, but we put all sorts of things in the place of God in our lives. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a job, maybe it's a goal in our life, maybe it's a hobby, maybe it's a pursuit, even a good one can take the place of God in our lives. They're idols. And they influence us away from God. And so that's why we have to viciously identify and root out these idols in our lives. Well, there are some other Old Testament books that come into play during this time period of this united uh, Israel too, that I want you to just kind of know about. One is the book of First Chronicles, which is kind of a commentary by the priest on the life of King David. Um, and then not only that, but most of the books that we call the wisdom literature, which are those five books there in the very middle of your Old Testament, um, they come into play during this time period too. The book of Psalms, which is really just a worship book. Most of those Psalms, over half, were written by David. There's the book of Proverbs, which are just wise sayings about wisdom, how to live life wisely. Most of those were written by Solomon. That would come to play during this part. Uh, there is uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, which was uh, Solomon's attempt to basically take all the wealth that he had and be able to test everything in life, just to live life to the fullest, to find out where you can really find meaning in life. And guess what Solomon concluded? That life apart from God was really meaningless. It was vanity. It was a chasing after the wind. And then the last one there that comes in this time period would be the Song of Solomon, which was kind of a PG-13 uh, love story that goes on there. That happened during Solomon's time, too. He's the one who wrote that book, okay? But um, the other wisdom literature book that isn't during this time period but is part of those five books of literature would be uh, the book of Job. Now, Job wasn't during this time period, but he really lived back more likely in the days of Abraham. And Job uh, really, um, uh, I think, deals with the question of suffering. In fact, real quick, let me give you just three quick lessons that I think Job teaches us. If you've never read the book of Job, one of the things I think Job teaches us is that there's more going on cosmically than just what you see or understand. You ever have somebody say this to you, or maybe you've said it yourself, I don't understand why God allowed this to happen. Well, next time you think that, here's what you need to realize. There's more going on cosmically than just what you see or understand. Second thing that I think Job teaches us is that our faithfulness to God shouldn't depend just upon what he does for us. 
just that God meets our expectations, right? God's not some magic genie that we rub and tell him what to do. That's not, that's not the deal. We miss who God is and who we are, see? And then I think the third aspect, the third thing that Job teaches us is that God is in control. Our job is to let God be God, and our role is to just trust and believe and obey him. Because there's more going on cosmically than we understand. And we don't serve God just because of what he does for us. He's in control. And so we trust, believe, and obey him. Well, back to the story. At the conclusion of Solomon's reign, his son Rehoboam comes to power to be the next king. And Rehoboam says, well, I don't really know what to do as king. What should I do? So he asks the older advisors. And the older advisors say to him, what you need to do is you need to love these people. You need to build a relationship with these people. You need to let these people know that they can trust and follow you. He says, okay. He asks his younger advisors what she should do, and he says, oh, no. None of that lovey-dovey stuff. You got to show them who's boss. You got to let them know that if, if they thought Solomon was tough on them, they just were getting started when it comes to you. And so, Rehoboam, being the wise person that he is, follows the younger advisors and gets tough with the people, and so there's civil war. And what happens is, as a result of that civil war, this nation of Israel divides into two nations. The northern ten tribes stay together under Rehoboam, and they, take the, they retain the name of Israel, and uh, they form that northern kingdom. The, the southern two tribes take on the name of Judah. Now, this northern kingdom, this part up here of Israel, what happens is they just have one bad king after another. By the way, you can read about the northern kingdom in the book of 2 Kings, okay? And these bad kings would just lead the people away from God. They would lead the people to following and serving idols, see, putting other things in place of where the one true God should be. Now, during this time period, God would raise up prophets and prophets were men of God who were mouthpieces for God. They would go to the people and they would basically say this, you need to turn back to God or there's going to be judgment. That's what prophets do. They do that back in the days of the northern kingdom. They do that today, right? They say, you need to turn back to God. You need to follow God or there's going to be judgment. Two of those prophets to the northern kingdom were Hosea and Amos. They were mouthpieces for God, despite the, the leadings of the kings away from God. These, these men of God stood up as prophets of God. You can read their books in their Old Testament, Hosea and Amos. They were here to the northern kingdom. Now, um, eventually what happens, though, because of the influence of these northern kingdoms, is that as they're turning away from God, just like the prophets warned them, they are facing judgment. And that judgment comes from the north. These are who? The Assyrians. The Assyrians come down and they capture uh, the land, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, okay? Now, what they would do when, when the Assyrians would come, that happened, by the way, in 722 B.C., for those of you who are keeping score. What would happen is when the Assyrians would come in, they would just desolate you. They would just scatter the people. They would just run everybody out is what the Assyrians would do. Now, just so you understand everything in the Old Testament, there were a couple of prophets prior to this that God had sent to Assyria. See, again, God was never just about Israel. He was about the whole world. One of those prophets was a guy that he sent to the capital city of Assyria, a city by the name of Nineveh. And he sent the prophet 
Jonah to go and to warn them. And despite Jonah not wanting to go, Jonah warned them, just like God told them, you need to turn back to God or there's going to be judgment. And what did they do? They turned to the one true God. They repented, and God relented of the judgment that he had planned, it tells us, to send to Assyria. But over time, guess what happens in Assyria? The people turn back away from the one true God. The people turn back to serving and following idols. So that a hundred years later, God sends another prophet, the prophet Nahum, who goes again to the Assyrians and said, you need to turn back to God, the one true God, or there's going to be judgment. And they ignore there's also another prophet that comes into play down here in the south, maybe back there, sort of kind of by the soundboard, that area back there. And that was a city down there by the name of Edom. And God sent a prophet named Obadiah to those people to warn them. Okay? Now, here we are in the story again. The Assyrians come down and they overtake the northern kingdom. They go to take as well the southern kingdom of Judah. But because they were truer to God, God doesn't allow the Assyrians to overtake them. Let's talk about the southern kingdom for a little bit. The southern kingdom had mostly bad kings as well, but interspersed with the bad kings were some good kings. Again, you could read them also about them in the book of 2 Kings as well as the book of 2 Chronicles. In addition, God sent prophets, again, raised up, men of God who would be mouthpieces for God to warn the people to turn back to the one true God or there would be judgment. God raised up prophets here to Judah, the, uh, the prophet Habakkuk, the prophet Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, who also wrote the book of Lamentations. It was lamenting the fact that the people of God were not following the true God and that God was going to send his judgment. That's the book of Lamentations. He also raised as well the prophet Joel and Micah and Zephaniah. And then in addition to this, not only this, but he sent specifically three prophets over to the capital city of Jerusalem. Here you go. Excuse me. Pardon me. Excuse me. Pardon me. Excuse me. You know. yeah. If you're going to be here in Israel, you need to know where Jerusalem is for crying out loud. And uh, so he sent three prophets to the capital city of Jerusalem, the prophet Haggai and Zephaniah and Malachi. But, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me here. Just like happened to the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, eventually in 606 B.C. was taken over. But not by the Assyrians. This time it came from the west, and that was the Babylonians who came and overtook them. And by the, by the way, they not only overtook them, they overtook the Assyrians too. But the Babylonians came and they overtook the land uh, of Judah, the southern tribes of Israel. Now, the Babylonians didn't do like the Assyrians. They didn't just decimate everything and scatter the people. What the Babylonians would do is they would carry the best and the brightest off back to Babylon. Okay? And so one of those young boys that got carried off into exile in Babylon was a fellow by the name of Daniel. That's right. Good. You're tracking with me. So Daniel is carried over here, and uh, he becomes, again, over time, rises to become a powerful person in the administration over here in Babylon. But um, then uh, you'll also read in Daniel's book that over time, 
God brings judgment on Babylon from the south and the southeast. The Persians come up and they overtake the Babylonians, okay? Now, speaking of Persia, by the way, just so you can complete the story, uh, there's another book in your Old Testament about a, a young girl in Persia who becomes queen and then uses her position of influence, despite her being afraid, despite her being scared, to step into a position to say, God, if you want to use me, I'll let you. And God uses her to basically preserve her whole people there in Persia, in, in the land of Babylon, okay? So, what, what happens then when the Persians took over, what they allowed to happen is they allowed uh, countries that they defeated. See, again, Persia comes and they overtake all of the Babylonian Empire, so now the Persians rule the Middle East. And what, what um, the Persians would do is they would allow peoples to go back and rebuild these cities and places that they had been decimated all along the way. And so, uh, there's a book about a guy by the name of Ezra who leads a band of people back from Persia and they come over here to the city of Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem. Not only that, they rebuild the people there so that the people again are starting to understand themselves as God's people, Abraham's descendants, and they again are making sacrifices to the one true God there in Jerusalem. Israel is being reestablished. Well, then there's a second individual, a fellow by the name of Nehemiah, who again was a cupbearer over here in Persia, and he leads a group of people back as well, and they help rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. See, you were really setting ducks for any enemy that would come if you didn't have fortified walls. And so Nehemiah leads a group of people back who helps create that barrier, who helps create that, uh, that wall around the city. In record time, they build that wall in order to do it. And so Israel, again, is reestablished. There's sacrifices, again, to the one true God. And then there's silence. For 400 years, there's silence. God doesn't raise up any more prophets. God doesn't uh, speak divinely to anyone. The nation of Israel is reestablished. They're offering sacrifices to the true God, but there's no word. Until one day, there appears in the sky a star. And it says that there were astrologers, scientists, wise men from the east who followed that star, knowing that it would lead them to a future promised coming king. Now, how do you think this group of scientists and astrologers from pagan Persia, Babylon, over here, would have known to be looking for a star that would lead them to a future promised king? I think it goes all the way back to Daniel who rose to power in Babylon and was such a man of character that when the Persians came and overthrew Babylon, they retained Daniel as a, as a wise astrologer, scientist, leader in that land as well. And I think it was his influence teaching them to be on the lookout for one day there would be a sign in the skies that would take you to a future promised king. And so we just celebrated Easter, or Easter, just celebrated Christmas and that whole season takes us to that event that a baby born, this future promised king, that ultimately would be born in Bethlehem and then go to Nazareth, and there in a home, these wise men would find him and 
offer him their sacrifices, recognizing him as this future promised king. And that's the story of the Old Testament. Now, if you want to know what happens next, I'm teaching a, a New Testament survey class here. In two weeks, you don't all need to take it, but if you're interested, we're going to take you from what happens from that part of the story all the way up to the book of Revelation on five Tuesday nights, uh, starting in a couple of weeks. There's information about that in your bulletin, okay? So, let me wrap this up. Let me give you four conclusions this morning based upon this, these 4,000 years of history that we've just covered here in the last 45 minutes or so. Let me give you four lessons. Lesson number one is this. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. It, it, it's this grand story of God bringing, putting into place this piece and this piece and this piece, all to lead to the redemption of his creation. Read your Bible. And don't be afraid of your, of your Old Testament. You know, some people uh, read the Bible through every year, and uh, they get about as far as Leviticus, and then they get bogged down, you know, and don't be afraid. Understand where Leviticus falls in the story and how Numbers comes after that. Their wanderings and Deuteronomy as God gives them the law the second time. And then Joshua as he leads them into the problem. Understand how it all flows. Read your Bible. In fact, read your Old Testaments, not just your New Testaments, because you have to understand how the one flows into the other. It's all part of God's redemptive plan. Read your Bible. Uh, application point number two is this. If you're not in one of our small groups, just like I said way back there when I was in Egypt... Um, if you're not in one of our small, small groups that's studying the gospel project, man, consider being a part of that. We are taking three years to understand the entire Bible. And we're not only talking about this part from the Old Testament, but each time we're connecting it forward to the picture of Jesus and the cross because I think that's what the Bible does all the way through. And so do that. Join up with one of our small groups. We're just barely into Exodus. Join one of those groups and be a part of that as we move into 2016. Our children, your children, by the way, uh, uh, elementary and preschool and uh, primary, all of that, they, they follow the gospel project as well, learning these stories. Ask them about it. I think as adults, we should be at least as smart about the Bible as our children. Shouldn't we? So consider that. Application number three, and this would really be the most important, and that is this, that if Jesus is not your redeemer. Man, don't, don't enter into the new year without being clear on that. See, all through all of these, all of these lambs, all of these sacrifices, all of this blood that was spilled was all pointing forward to this ultimate sacrifice. That Jesus, when he came, wasn't just that cute little baby in the manger, but he grew up and ultimately died on a cruel cross to shed his blood as the Lamb of God to pay for our sins. And if you have never personalized that, if you have never claimed his shed blood as the payment for your sins, see, way back there in the Passover, the fact that you knew everything, but if you didn't personalize it, if you didn't paint the blood over the doorframe of your house, you suffered the judgment of God. Boy, if you've never done that or you're not clear on that, Man, don't leave today without talking to someone who can make sure that you're clear and that you know that you know that you know that Jesus is your Redeemer. And then finally, application number four is just this. Let's worship Jesus. As one person wisely said, every page of our Bibles whispers his name. 
I hope you saw that this morning as we walked through this. See, God was laying a plan of which the cross is very central. And you know, here's what's really cool. It didn't end at the cross either, did it? See, we're all part of this continuing story of God working through history that when we get to the end, Revelation 21 and 22, then all of creation will be redeemed, will be restored. We're part of that story too. And so in the meanwhile, what do we do? Well, one of the things we do is let's worship Jesus. And so let's do that right now. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing, worship team, you can come. I'm going to pray for us in just a minute. But, but before I do, let me, let me tell you this. Uh, while we're singing, there'll be prayer team people over here on both sides. Maybe you've got something going on in your, in your life that you would just benefit from being prayed for. Well, while we're singing, you just slip out and go to one of these people. They would love to pray with you or to pray for you about anything under the sun. You take advantage of that. As I promised, we're going to sing this song that we sing sometimes around here called the Song of Moses that's based upon those words in Exodus 15 when, when Moses wrote his praise to God, praising him for, for uh, delivering them through the Red Sea and just how Christ is our deliverer and our redeemer as well. For those of you who say, how come we don't sing any old songs around here? We're going to sing this 5,000-year-old song. The song isn't exactly five, but it's based upon Moses' words right there in Exodus 15. We're going to sing that together, and let's sing it as an act of worship today. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our Redeemer. Thank you, God, for your plan laid out in history, all pointing to the coming of Jesus who would die for me, who would shed his blood for me. And so we praise you for that this morning, and we pray that you'll receive glory from our efforts to give you praise, and we do it so in your name. Amen. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's Word and seek to know Him better through the Gospel. Our prayer is that the Gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the Word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.